book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, last chapter of the Bible, chapter 22, Revelation chapter 22, as we finish up this book. Revelation chapter 22, this morning we're studying verses 1 to 5. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. I've said before that uh, Revelation 21 and 22 here is my favorite part of the book of Revelation because it's such a, a vivid description, probably one of the most extensive, um, lush descriptions of the eternal life that awaits us as Christians. Uh, this, this is such an amazing picture. And I find that I, I need Revelation 21 all the way, and it goes really starts at 21.1, it goes down through 22, verse 5. Uh, I, I, and I need this section to remind me of, of what it is I'm living for as a Christian. I find myself so easily distracted by worldly temptations, worldly sins, diversions. And I find that it's so, it's so hard to keep up my zeal for God, my, my seeking after the Lord, and not get distracted by my kind of spiritual ADD, where I'm always off into some other thing and I forget about the Lord and, and His call upon my life. But I feel like when I read Revelation 21 and, and 22 here, and I, I remind, I'm reminded of what it is God has in store for us as Christians, it just draws me forward again and reignites my appetite for eternal things uh, rather than the things of this world and, and sin. And so that's why, uh, even though Revelation chapter 21 to 22, 5 is kind of one vision of the new creation, the new Jerusalem, we slowed it down, we've broken it up, and it's really three sermons. This is the third sermon today, closing out chapter 22, verse 1 to 5 of this vision. It's because I just want us to slow down and kind of savor the aroma of heaven. You know, we spend so much time just being busy and active, and I find myself onto this thing, onto the next thing, this project, that project. But I thought we could slow down here and just, you know, inhale heaven's breeze. And be reminded of what it is that we're living for as Christians. And so I just want to look at you today at these five verses. And I want to point out uh, just another two aspects of the eternal glory and the eternal blessing that God has in store for us. Two more um, uh, parts of this description. And really that's what we've been doing as we've been going through this chapter. is just looking at heaven. Taking a virtual tour of our future home. And so here in chapter 22 verses 1 to 5, let me point out. Just finally, two more things that characterize the eternal destiny that God has in store for his people. 
Two more aspects of it that should pull us on and stir up our zeal for Christ. And the first one is this, that eternal life, or, or that heaven and, and, and the future God has for us is a place of eternal life. It's a place where life never ends. Look at the chapter 22, verses 1 to 3 again. It says, Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. So you'll notice there's a water of life flowing down the middle of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has this, the new Jerusalem has this big river going right down Main Street. It's like Venice or something, you know, the streets are, are water. And, and on each side of the, of the water of life is the tree of life. And it's always bearing crops. You don't have to wait for this thing to produce fruit. Any month you go out there, it's bearing fruit. Even the leaves produce healing. You know, it's just all these images of, of life and vitality being produced uh, from God. There's no longer any curse. It's just eternal life. For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is a great promise of God. I mean, it, it's mind-blowing. Eternal life. But here it is. In, so, so the New Jerusalem is really lush. and It's very verdant. That's the kind of imagery we have here. Because of the life of God that's flowing out of God's throne into the city. Now, does this description of the tree of life and the river of life and all this, does this ring any bells for you in terms of Old Testament background? But when you think of the, the Old Testament, it, it, does it remind you of anything in the Old Testament? The Garden of Eden. Does, does anyone sort of hear the Garden of Eden there? The tree of life? Do this. Put a bookmark here in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. We'll come back. And turn to the first book of the Bible, book of Genesis, chapter 2. And notice the Garden of Eden language that's appropriated by Revelation to describe our future home with its eternal life. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. So God has made Adam, and now he brings him to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life. There it is. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And then it reappears in the new Jerusalem. So, so our future in, hev in heaven and in the new creation is like a return to Eden is how it's being described. Look at verse 10 of Genesis 2. A river. There's the river. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And there it's separated into four headwaters. So you have the tree of life that's being watered by a river that's giving life to this incredible, lush paradise of God. And that's where God puts Adam. So we'll jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. And he gave him a job. It's to work it and to take care of it. And then get this. I love verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man. God was in Eden too. And he was reigning and ruling. 
really, the Garden of Eden was the kingdom of God on earth, where God was king, and he was giving life to Adam and giving life to everybody, and Adam was being commanded by God. You know, it, it reminds me, again, going back to Revelation chapter 22, you have the, the river of the water of life flowing clear as crystal, and where does it flow from in Revelation 22? It flows out of the throne of God. Isn't that interesting? So in other words, it is from God on his throne that life issues forth. Uh, in other words, it's God's presence that makes Eden Eden. Why was Eden so wonderful? Was it just because it was a really tropical paradise? It was, it was like, you know, going to the Caribbean or something? Is that why it was so wonderful? No, the, the thing that gave Eden its sparkle and its magic and its life was that God's throne, in essence, was there. It's because God was present and God was in charge and Adam was obeying God that life flowed from him. You see, God's authority is a life-giving authority. When God is in charge, life issues forth. When God's authority is rejected, we cut ourselves off from life. And I just think it's really interesting because we tend to think of authority and life as opposite kind of things. You know, we're told to question authority. We think authority is a bad thing. And sometimes in a sinful world, authority is corrupted and does become a bad thing. But, but I think we tend to think that authority is fundamentally opposed to life and to joy and to love and to happiness. But people, that's not a biblical understanding of authority. That's a very satanic understanding of authority. That, that life and love are juxtaposed to authority. Isn't that what Satan said to Adam and Eve? I mean, he basically told them, look, if you really want to be happy, if you really want to have life, if you really want to enjoy yourselves, you need to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and become essentially your own gods. You need to throw off God's authority and take some authority for yourself. Make yourself happy. Determine your own right and wrong. So it's interesting that, that really biblical authority, godly authority, produces life. And it's true at a human level too. You know, God has delegated some of his authority to human beings. He's delegated some authority to parents. And when parents are parenting in a godly way, it gives life to children. Children flourish under godly authority. Uh, in a marriage, you know, God has placed the husband as the head of the family. And when a husband is being a godly, loving, serving, engaged, not withdrawn, but, you know, an engaged, loving husband, it just it just pours life into that family. And families flourish under godly leadership. Uh, in churches, God has given a measure of authority to pastors and elders. And when pastors and elders are being godly and humble and, and leading and using their authority well, it gives life to churches. Authority under God's rule gives life. And, and here we see it even in Eden. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. And God gives him authority. He says, work it, take care of it. But remember, you're following my authority. And so it says in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man. The throne is in the center and life flows out from it. And he says in verse 16, what's the command? You show, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. There it is. When we reject God as king, when we reject him as our maker, we think that we're finding freedom and life and happiness, 
but we're actually on the road to death because we've cut ourselves off from God, who is life. All life comes from God. And so to reject God's rule and his authority in our life is to embrace death. And so you know the story, Adam and Eve, they, they obeyed for some time. We don't know how long, maybe weeks, maybe an hour. But the serpent came along, and the serpent said, oh, you got this all backwards. You want to be happy for the rest of your life? What you've got to do is you have to take control of your life. You need to become the master of your own destiny. You need to determine for yourself what right and wrong is. And so they ate of the forbidden fruit, and the curse of death came upon them. Look at Genesis chapter 3. There's the curse. Look down in Adam, verse 17. I won't go through all the curses, but... God curses Eve, he curses the serpent, Satan, he curses Adam. And look what he says to Adam in verse 17. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. So it's not going to be eaten. It's not going to be this wonderful paradise. And at the end of the day, after you've worked hard and fought and slaved just to get your food, then... You will return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so the curse of death has now come upon all of the human race. And curses or death is so normal to us that we just say, well, it's part of the circle of life. Everything dies. Yeah, yeah, that's not how God meant it to be. God meant us to live with him eternally, forever. Death is a curse that has come because of our rejection of the throne. You see that? And God made sure we wouldn't go back in. Look at verse 22. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. In other words, he's, he's taken on a posture of self-reliance and of self-deification where he will determine right and wrong for himself. Therefore, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Permanently banished from the Garden of Eden. And that's where we live as human beings today. You know, where, where do we live? We live outside of Eden. This is the human condition. We're outside of Eden. We like to pretend we're not outside of Eden. We like to try to recreate our own little Edens. We, we, we have utopian visions for how to make a better world. There are political versions of Eden. There are leftist Marxist versions of Eden. There, there are conservative American versions of Eden. Oh, if we could just go back to the pilgrims. You know, then America would be an Edenic paradise. You know? But the pilgrims died because they were under the curse of God too as as all human beings are, living outside of Eden. Even the best ideas, even the best churches and organizations and, and utopian dreams are ultimately undercut by human sin and by, and by death in the final analysis. And so outside of Eden, we sweat and we toil to make things better and to grow and plant things, but, but in the end we die. I mean, it's, it's tragic. We try to make our own little Edens in our lives, you know, whether it's the guy... Uh, you know, redoing his garage into a man cave. It's like, this is my little Eden in this man cave. This is my happy place, right? 
If you don't, don't touch it. Don't mess with it. Uh, we, we all have these little spheres of our lives. I, we're, uh, Jennifer and I were on vacation last week, and we were up in Maine, and uh, for part of the time we visited one of her high school friends who married a pastor. And this pastor was telling us there's a, a family in his church, a husband and wife, who finally were reaching retirement age. And his dream throughout retirement was he was going to have an apple orchard. That was his little, you know, his dream. He just wanted an apple orchard. He wanted to grow apples. It was cool. But he was his own little Eden that he had in his mind. And so he finally retires. He finally get this apple orchard. And, like, just after retiring, he's diagnosed, brain tumor, fast acting, and in, like, a couple months he's gone. And so the wife is saying, you know, they're Christian people, but he died. And so the wife now has 500 apple trees. With apples going, what do I do with all this, this fruit? I mean, it's just gone. Death had, had just come in and undercut this beautiful plan and this dream, a really cool dream of, of an apple orchard and growing apples and then seeing God's creation. But death undercuts even our best dreams. You know, even the best organizations, the best families, the best churches. Death comes and it takes the pastors and it takes the, the patriarchs and the matriarchs and the CEOs. You know, it, it just wipes out all of our human plans. And so this is where we live, outside of Eden. And this is the amazing message of the gospel, that God has a plan for returning us to Eden. And so you, you see God's plan unfolding in the pages of Scripture. You see it as Israel was brought out of Egypt into the promised land of Canaan. You notice that the way Canaan is described, it's very Edenic. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And Israel comes in. Israel's like the new Adam. In fact, God even says, you know, out of Egypt I've called my son. And so Israel's like a second Adam coming into the promised land of Canaan. Finally, you know, God's kingdom is restored. They're going to obey God's laws. God even has a throne there. It's the Ark of the Covenant. You know? and, it, and it's interesting, if you look at the temple imagery and the things that were inscribed and, and drawn into the temple, it's pomegranates and palm trees. It's very Edenic. So it's this, all this return to Eden imagery is happening as Israel comes into the Promised Land. But like Adam, they disobeyed God. They broke his laws. And guess what? They got kicked out of Canaan. And they were exiled. And yet God still had a plan to bring his people into the promise, into the promised paradise. And you get echoes and hints of it in the prophets. Let me just show you two quick Old Testament prophecies that, that point to this. Look at Isaiah chapter 35. We kind of trace this Eden imagery through the Bible. It's on page 709. 709 in the Pew Bible. If you're a little unfamiliar with Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 35. Look at this description of God's future blessing in Isaiah, this promise he has of a return to Eden. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Reminds me of the ministry of Christ. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. So here's this life-giving water coming forth. And look what happens. A garden begins to grow. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. 
And then you get this, verse 8, a highway will be there. So now there's a road, just like, kind of like it reminds me of Revelation 22. There's a road with water and plants, and it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be, it will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast uh, get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will, uh, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This was this wonderful picture of this company of the redeemed running away from sorrow forever back into this presence of God. It's even more amazing. Look at now one more. Ezekiel chapter 47. Page 869. 869. Ezekiel 40 to 48 is a, a picture, a prophecy of the new temple, which is really fulfilled, I think, in Revelation 21 and 22. But if you look at, look at this characteristic of this future temple, it's a garden temple. It's a lush garden temple. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1. We could spend all morning tracing this imagery throughout the Bible. But I'll just do one more verse here. Ezekiel 47, verse 1. So Ezekiel's having this vision of the temple. It says, The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. So from God's throne in the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, is water coming out. So there's this river coming from the throne. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was flowing from the south side. Look down at verse 7. We'll jump down a little bit. So he sort of follows the river that gets bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper. It says, when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region. It goes down into the Arabah, which is a total desert waste. Where it enters the sea, and where it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live there, wherever the water flows. There will be large numbers of fish. So it's, it's like the creation all over again. Fish and animals in the ocean. Because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. It's living water. And then verse 12. This is where Revelation 22 comes from. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. That's where Revelation 22 draws its imagery. So now jump to Revelation 22. Here's where all of those hopes, all of those prophecies, all of those hints reach their fulfillment when we are finally with God, back in paradise, except not just a return to Eden, it's just like Eden escalated, Eden on steroids, Eden times, you know, a thousand. It's, it's a greater Eden in God's presence. And there's the water of life flowing from the throne of God. As God's people are finally in fellowship with Him, under His loving, life-giving rule, and there death is no more. Can you imagine... No more funerals. No more Memorial Day. No more memorial services. No more heartbreaks. No more betrayals. No more grief. No 
more grief therapy needed. Just no death. Eternal life with God. There is no longer, verse 3, any what? Curse. That's a reference back to the curse of death in the Garden of Eden. And the amazing thing for us as Christians is this eternal life has already begun in our hearts. It's, it's reaching its culmination in that day. But when you come to faith in Jesus, eternal life begins in you. It's, it's like a seed from the Garden of Eden has been planted in your soul. And even though your body's wasting away and we get old and we die, yet there's eternal life in us that will someday lead to our resurrection and our, our entry into this new eternity that God has planned. Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in Samaria. Do you know that story? And uh, he's like, hey, can you give me some water from this well? And the woman's a little bit freaked out because she's a Samaritan woman. He's a Jewish man. Jews and Samaritans were at odds. And she says, why, why are you asking me this? You know? And, and, uh, and he says, look, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water, living water. And then he promises her. He says, you know, whoever believes in me will have water welling up within them to eternal life. Talking about the Holy Spirit. So even when we become Christians, there is this living water, there's eternal life that's been planted in us. And so though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Becoming a Christian, and I think I just love those testimonies, because they're so clear. Being a Christian is not about adopting a set of life rules that you keep faithfully. That's what, that's, I saw that, heard that sort of theme in the testimonies. People thought, well, I'm a Christian because I do this and I do that and I'm a good person and I... I help an elderly person with their you know, garbage or whatever good deeds we, we sort of construct for ourselves, whatever our definition of good and evil is that we've constructed for ourselves. And we check those boxes off and say, well, I guess I'm a Christian because I did good things. But the biblical understanding of Christianity is more what Cynthia was saying, that it's a miracle. It's something not on the outside rules that we keep. It's an eternal life that's planted in us by the Holy Spirit and then begins to work its way out through us. So that a real Christian should be loving and doing good acts. But it's because there's a new principle of life growing within us. From the inside out. As eternal life wells up from within. Do you have eternal life? Is eternal life welling up from within you? Or are you like, you know, the stories where it's just so good. I'm a good person. I'm fine. I'm decent. Or have you come to see that you're actually in desert? That you need the Holy Spirit to come into your life and change you and forgive you and make you a new person. Back to Revelation 22. Let me just show you another uh, characteristic of this, this future we have. The first, just moving along here, is that it's a, a place of eternal life. No longer any death. Return to Eden. And number two, here's the second one. It's a place of eternal light in God's presence. So there's the eternal life that flows from his throne. But then there's the eternal light of actually being with God. Look at verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So once again, return to the garden, reigning with God. But notice the imagery of light here. It's a place of eternal life. Eternal life and eternal light. 
And what does that light symbolize? What does it mean that God is light? Because, you know, everywhere he shows up in the Bible, he's always shining. Notice that about God. Wherever he shows up in the Bible, there's always light. People are always, you know, doing this and falling on the ground. He's described as, as robed in light. First Timothy 6 says that he dwells in unapproachable light. When Jesus appears in Revelation, his face is shining. You know, when, when Christ is transfigured on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, he's covered in light. I mean, just God is this glorious being of light. Uh, when God first created the world, what's the first thing he made? Let there be light. You know, life comes from God and light comes from God. And, and light really refers to his holiness and his purity. That God is holy, he's pure, he is without sin, just as light. You know, think how pure light is. You know, like, what is light? It, you know, it's an energy photon, but it's, it's pure. There's no, there's no impurities in it. It's, it's so God is holy, he is light. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light. And so God is holy and pure. And, and you see this holiness thing here in these verses because you see this sort of temple imagery. Uh, so look at verse 3. Notice that it says, The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Now that word for serve, that Greek word, is a very much a, a temple word. It's very much like a priestly word. So it's a kind of service that priests would do in the temple. So in this new garden, we're also priests serving God. And it says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Remember in the Old Testament, the priest, when he served, had a headband. And then he had a, like a plaque on the headband. Remember what it said on the head on the plaque? It said, holy to the Lord. And so God's name was literally on his forehead as he went into the temple to worship the Lord and serve him and delight in him. So, so the imagery here is not only of a life-giving place, but a holy place. And what I find so fascinating is that in this holy place, we will see his face. I love that. That's probably my favorite line there. We will see his face. You know? Everywhere else in the Bible, when people see God, they run away or die. But we will finally be free from sin. We will finally be with him. So that rather than God's face appearing and we all do this thing, we will run towards him and look at his face. Because we'll finally be free from sin and we'll be able to savor his holiness rather than be terrified of his holiness. I, I just find that such a remarkable verse. I mean, look back at chapter 20. Go back to chapter 20 of Revelation. Look at verse 11. Remember the white throne judgment? We studied this several weeks ago. Then I saw a great white throne, Revelation 20, 11. Him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. See that word presence? You know what the Greek word is? Face. So when God shows his face on the judgment day, the whole creation goes, ah, you know, just runs away. It flees from his face. But in this new place, we will be drawing close to his face. We'll see his face and be with him. That's what makes Eden Eden. That's what makes eternal life eternal life is that we'll be with our Creator, who is infinitely wonderful and glorious with, with the Father and the Lamb and the Holy Spirit forever. Have you seen these videos going around the Internet? Uh, you can get them on YouTube or 
Facebook. And uh, it's, it's these pictures of military reunions with their families. Have you seen these? But yeah, get a box of Kleenex, okay? I don't care how manly you think you are. You will sob like a baby. I didn't, but, you know, people do. Um, <laughs> but it, it's these videos, and, and you know, it's, it's like the home video, and it's all these surprise reunions where, you know, the wife will be cooking dinner, and she doesn't know that her husband's come back from Iraq or wherever, and he'll, like, sneak in, you know, and, and she'll turn around, and, you know, they, get, they always get the first face, like, <gasps> you know, and she runs, and she's hugging him, and, and she's sobbing, and everyone's crying, you're just, oh, <laughs> Um, and then, uh, you know, that the mother will see her son who's come back. But the ones that just, like, rip your heart out are the little kids. Those are the ones that just, oh, they're terrible. I mean, they're just horrible because I can't do this. But, you know, it'll always be like a classroom. You've seen these videos? And it'll be, you know, little Susie's second grade class. And she's in her class. And she's sitting there at her desk, you know, and everyone's... And she's, like, the last person in the room to realize that her dad is, like, you know, in the doorway and fatigued. And he's just standing there. And then, you know, suddenly she sees him and... <laughs> and she starts, you know, she starts sobbing. And, like, she doesn't raise her hand to say, can I get up and go see my dad? She's just, like, over the desk. And, you know, in her dad's arms. Because she finally gets to see his face. It's like she's talked to him on the phone when he was overseas. She's emailed him, you know, but she didn't get to see his face. Man, when when they open up the New Jerusalem, there's going to be a stampede as we just run to see the Father. Finally. Lord, we've read about you. We've heard your voice in our hearts. We've spoken to you in prayer. I want to finally see you. I want to see you, my Why do we compromise with the world? Why do I settle for sin? Why is my zeal for the Lord so weak? Why? Why? When this is my father. And it's all because of Christ. The only reason we can have hope of this is because of Jesus Christ's blood shed on the cross. How can sinful, wayward people like us have any hope of eternal life or the eternal holy presence of God? We have no hope of that. We can't get there. We're not good enough. But you see, Jesus Christ came. He lived the life of perfect obedience that Adam didn't do, that Israel didn't do, that we didn't do. He went into the desert just as Adam was tested, just as Israel was tested. So Jesus, the true Son of God, went into the wilderness for 40 days and he was tested. And he obeyed the voice of God. And whatever the Father did, the Son did. Jesus would say, I only do what my Father tells me to do. He lived perfect obedience. And oh, the eternal life that flowed through him as godly authority and submitted to that produced life through him. And not only did Jesus live the perfect Son life of obedience that we failed to live, and he did it in our place. He then took 
the burden of our sin in our place. So he lived the life we've never lived, and he took the curse of death that we all deserve. And he was crucified, and he was buried, and he was raised again. And so it's because of who Christ is that we can have hope of eternal life with our Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. So do you have Christ? Do you know the Lord? Is your hope in Christ? Or are you still outside of Eden trying to make salvation with your own two hands? I'll I'll make it for myself. I'm a good person. I do this. I do that. I'm fine. Or when will you realize that there is a Savior who's lived the life and has died the death and is coming again? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we pray that you would continue to rehabilitate our affections and cause us to have pure and holy, Holy Spirit-given longings for eternal life with you. God, reveal to us how great the salvation is that you have in store for us. Lord, we know that as our appetite for you grows, our appetite for this world will shrivel because a person cannot have two masters and they cannot have two appetites. So, God, increase our appetite for you. Help us to love you, Lord. I just pray for this church. This church would be a church filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, this would be a church full of people who, who are just full of Christ. That when, when newcomers come into this new building that we finish at God, they wouldn't be ooing and aahing at the, the new sanctuary or the new construction. But they would just have a sense of your holy presence here as a little foretaste of Eden. God, may we be a people filled up with the Holy Spirit. And Lord, may that water of life flow out of us so that when we're in our neighborhoods, when we're in our workplaces or at school in a month here, God, that the Holy Spirit would just flow forth from us and people would get a little taste of Eden by bumping into us, Lord. May we be uh, living ambassadors for the Garden of Eden that's to come and for you. And so God, use us, we pray. And Lord, give us more. Fill up our church more. Bring revival here more. God, we just want more of your, your presence in our lives and less of sin and less of this world. We pray this in Jesus' name.